And please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 18 this evening. I uh, am being extremely ambitious this evening, um, seeking to get through three chapters of Scripture. And in doing so, if you're familiar with what happens when I, when I broaden my uh, attempt at, at uh, expositing the Scripture a little bit, I get slightly into summary mode. So what you will be seeing on the screen this evening, what I will, be t- I will be telling you everything that's happening, but on the screen you will not see all the verses. I'm going to be giving you the verses in chunks rather than giving you the verse, verse by verse because we're covering so much ground this evening. Um, and, and I would encourage you, uh, if you are, are so inclined, to go back having heard the message and perhaps read the three chapters verse by verse to pick up perhaps a little bit more of that continuity or the fluidity of thought that comes from reading verse by verse. Uh, it's, it's simply too much for us to cover in one evening in an um, expositional set fashion, but by that same token, the point that I would like to make spans the, the uh, entirety of the chapters. So, the fallout for David's sin with Bathsheba against Uriah, and against Uriah the Hittite uh, has already been great, right? We learned about that last week. David has been deposed of his throne. Uh, he has a dead son, that would have been uh, before, uh, a rebellious son, that would be now, and now the nation is divided in two with Absalom, his rebellious son, taking the majority of Israel. Ahithophel is now dead uh, because his counsel was not heeded. We talked about why that was last week. Ahithophel, Ahithophel being Bathsheba's grandfather and the father of a man named Eliam, who is one of David's mighty men, Ahithophel no doubt felt extremely betrayed by David's wicked sin with Bathsheba, by uh, David murdering her husband, who would have been his grandson-in-law. And so, as such, Ahithophel wanted David dead when his plan did not come to pass. He hanged himself because of the resentments that he had, had built against David. All of these things have happened now as a judgment for sin, as God had promised David he would do, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. And as we begin our study today, as I mentioned, spanning three chapters of Scripture in more of a summary fashion, I want to begin with a, a careful statement. We, we warn against sin in this church, and we state that sin always has consequences. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it delivers less than it promises. And we say that quite regularly. Sin takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and delivers less than it promises. Sin always has consequences, and that doesn't mean that every sin you choose to engage in will destroy your life. You can sin and still have a quite comfortable life. You will enjoy those sins because the flesh that is within you enjoys sin. But make no mistake, even if the sins that we commit aren't devastating to us physically. Don't do like David's sin did and cause him to be deposed of his throne and to lose children and to... To, to destroy others' lives through his selfishness. Make no mistake, our sin still has consequence. That there is a spiritual effect on our lives when we sin. We may not always recognize these things to be consequences, but that's only because we don't know just what might have been 
had we done what was right instead of choosing what was wrong? Had we chosen to follow the Lord instead of choosing to indulge the pleasures of sin for a season? And as we've said so many times of late, you and I will never know just how much blessing we may have missed by pursuing our sin until the day that we stand before God. And that's not to give us a dismal outlook on this life. We all sin, and when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we are restored, and we can live in fellowship with the Lord day by day, moment by moment, even though we're sinful people. I'm not trying to to sound overly harsher or or, um, overly dismal. For indeed, the grace of God is greater than all our sin. But we are in a place in the Scriptures where now we're just... We're studying David's failures. And so it's going to be a little bit harder, a little bit less enjoyable. And it's going to remind us again and again as we see these consequences that there are consequences for sin. And so those consequences are going to expand in today's exposition. Uh, And let's dig in since we have so much to cover. We step into our text this evening with the battle Proper The battle itself between the followers of Absalom and those of David. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Uh, this was an inevitable end, right? Uh, David fled the city of Jerusalem because he did not want Jerusalem to be the center of the battle. He did not want the people of Jerusalem to, to, have, uh, to be killed for this battle. So David fled Jerusalem, but the battle had to take place. Absalom wants David dead. He wants David's life. And so David either must give his life or he must fight for his life. And David sets captains over his men. He's a seasoned warrior. He's a seasoned general. He knows how to do this. He's done this before. His men are seasoned warriors as well. And he breaks his men into three groups, into three camps. One led by Joab, who has been the captain of his host for some time now. Another led by Joab's brother, Abishai, who we saw a couple of weeks ago offer to take the head off of Shimei, remember? Uh, he offers to chop his head off. He's the same one that offered to kill Saul and uh, when David was still in exile. Um, And so Abishai is in charge of one-third of the men. And then the third man, as we talked about before, is Ittai, the Gittite. He was the Philistine exile. He had just recently come to be with David. Literally days before David's exile, he had just gotten to Jerusalem with his men, and uh, he was placed over one-third of David's men. So he's got the men broken up under three leaders. And David says that he will go with them also. Now, David's men immediately state that this is a really, really bad idea. Now, David was a warrior, and typically he would go with the men into battle, and that wasn't necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. But what they said is, while it would be great to have David there, he would become a strong distraction in the battle. They knew that the entire goal of the battle, Absalom did not want bloodshed in Israel. He did not want there to be a civil war. And the more people that died on either end, the harder it would be to bring the kingdom together, right? And if there was enough bloodshed, the kingdom might very well be lost. It might be just plain split in two. And so minimal bloodshed was the point on both ends. And they knew, okay, if David is in the battle, then Absalom is not going to care about anything but him. That they are going to focus on him entirely, and in doing so... Uh, it would just be very difficult for this battle to be fought uh, as they wanted to fight the battle. The whole point would be to kill David. It would be playing right into Absalom's purpose. 
to put David out there on the battlefield. David stays away from the battlefield. Then Absalom has to go through the army to get to David. If you put David on the battlefield, then Absalom doesn't have to go through the army. He just has to hit David as a part of the army. So the king stays, but he makes a direct request of his men as he stays. Verse 5, And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. David specifically says, okay, I'm not going out with you, but you must deal kindly with Absalom. Be kind to him. Do whatever you can to spare him. uh, David says it to his three generals, and all of the people hear it. There's accountability there. So the battle begins. And the text tells us that the battle took place in the woods of Ephraim. And Absalom's men, the scriptures tell us, were slain before David. Verse 7 telling us 20,000 men were killed on that day. It's hard for us to imagine what those battles must have been like. That many people dying in, in one battle it would have been just tremendous numbers. Interestingly, verse 8 says that the woods in which they fought devoured and killed more men than the sword did. So the woods were apparently full of great dangers. Maybe uh, cliffs, ravines, marshes, maybe wild animals. Whatever it was, the Bible says that the woods killed more people than the sword on that day. So 20,000 people died and Absalom's men were put to the worst. Absalom lost this battle handily. We continue in verses 9 through 18 and we read of the, uh, the fate of Absalom himself. Verse 9 says, And Absalom met the servants of David and he rode upon a mule and the mule went under a, the thick bough of a great oak and his head caught hold of the oak and he was taken up between heaven and earth and the mule that was under him went away. So Absalom is on a mule as he's battling in the woods of Ephraim. Uh, We've talked about the long hair. Remember, he only cut his hair once per year. And that would have been because his hair got so heavy by the end of the year. This guy could grow some hair. You can imagine that in in one year, his hair was so thick and so long that he, he literally couldn't, It was too heavy for him as a strong guy. uh, You can imagine how fast his hair grew. And so we were probably closer to the end of his year cycle of cutting his hair and then growing it back as he had long hair at this point. And as he's fleeing from David's soldiers, his hair gets caught in the thickets, in the boughs of this oak. And he's hanging there, right? So he's now suspended between the earth and the heaven in this tree hanging by his hair. And he's stuck. He is really stuck. The mule runs away. So he's got no hope of getting himself untangled. And he's just stuck. Uh, One of Joab's men sees this. And he goes to tell Joab. Joab rebukes him in verse 11. And says, well, effectively he says, if he's stuck there, why didn't you kill him? He's there. He's defenseless. Why didn't you kill him? And perhaps the man kind of looks at Joab cross-eyed and says, you know why I didn't kill him. Because... Our king told us not to, to deal kindly with him. And I thought that if I killed him, I would be killed. Joab responds in verse 14, I may not tarry thus with thee. He, would have, he, said, he promised, he told the, the man, I would have given you money if you'd have killed this man. I would have honored you if you'd have killed this man. The man says, no, no, no. 
The king told us not to. I wouldn't go against that. Joab says, I don't have time to deal with you. I don't have time to talk to you about this. And then verse 14 says, And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. So Joab kills Absalom while he's hanging helplessly in a tree. And this is completely expected with Joab, right? For those of you who have been following this series for some time, Joab killed Abner dishonestly. If you remember, Abner was the captain of Saul's hosts and then the captain of Ishbosheth's host. And after David and, and Abner made the deal whereby the armies of Saul or of Ishbosheth would be transferred over to David and there would be a peaceable end to this war. Joab is angry at Abner for having killed his brother Azahel. And so he takes him aside and very kindly speaks with him and then stabs him and kills him. It dishonorably, not in battle, but in peace. Dishonorably kills him. Joab was willing to allow Uriah the Hittite to be dishonorably murdered by David. Joab now kills Absalom and again kills him in a dishonorable way. Absalom is defenseless. He's the king's son and he'd been told not to kill Absalom, but to deal kindly with him and he kills him anyway. Joab will do this again, by the way. We'll see that soon. Joab is a a man that has elements of wisdom, but he is a man that lacks principle. He's a violent man. He's a man that fails in honor. And we see that throughout his life. So he kills David's son in cold blood, defenseless and directly contrary to the will of his king. Then he blows the trumpet. He calls the armies. Deed is done. Mission accomplished. And verse 17 tells us that they took Absalom and they didn't bury him. They didn't take him back to David. They threw him into a pit and they threw a heap of rocks on top of him. And that ends Absalom. David did not even get get a chance to bury his son in the sepulcher of his family. Now it's time to report the results to the king. Now the problem, of course, is that Absalom was killed in the battle and this is not a good thing. David did not want him killed and he was killed. So Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, asks if he may run to David and tell him the news that God had avenged him of his enemies. Ahimaaz, you remember, was one of the messengers with Jonathan that was, was going back and forth between the priests of God and David. They were effectively spies. He's excited. He's excited that David can come back home. He's excited that the king is once again the king. He's excited that this, this uh, battle has been, been won. But Joab responds, nope, nope, not today. The king's son is dead. You really don't have any good news to tell him. Ahimeaz uh, might be excited to announce the victory, but Joab understands that the news will not be good news to David because his son has been killed. Now at some point, however, we don't know if it was immediately or if it was the next day or whenever, at some point Joab does decide it's time to tell the king, but he doesn't send Ahimeaz. He sends a man named Cushi to go and tell the king what he has seen. Now, in that day, how were messages sent? With runners. They were sent with runners. So you had men of extreme athleticism, and they were supposed to run. As a matter of fact, this was the basis for what would become the marathon. The marathon was founded, the, the Greek Olympics, uh, the, the marathon event was founded upon these men. These men that were extremely capable runners, and they were extremely capable runners because they were responsible to run messages from the battlefield 
to cities. So they would run for miles and miles and miles on end to take these messages to their intended destination. They were swift uh, men, they were strong men, they were athletic men, and they could just run. And so Cushai goes, and uh, Ahimeaz sees Cushai leave, and he still wants to be the bearer of the report. So he says, can I go too? And Joab says, look, there's nothing to report. I've already sent the report. And he says, well, just let me run. <laughs> He's just so excited. He just wants to run. So Joab says, okay, go. And he does. And the scriptures tell us that actually Ahimeaz overruns Cushai. He runs faster than Cushai, and he gets to David first. And the text tells us that um, in verse 29, and the king said, uh, is the young man Absalom safe? So Ahimeaz gives his report. He gives his report that all is well, that the battle is won, and David doesn't care. He says, is my son safe? To which Ahimeaz answers, when Joab sent the king's servant and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. Ahimeaz is um, really beaten around the bush here, trying not to give her any sort of a report one way or another. Basically, he pleads ignorance, which is really not the case, but he pleads it in a semi-deceitful way. All he says is, there was a great tumult before I left, but I have no idea what. I just left to tell you that the battle had been won. So, with little more to offer the king... The king hears the battle is won, but he has no idea what happened to his son. He says, okay, Ahimeaz, step aside. Let's see what the next guy has to say. They saw Cushai running in the distance. He comes. Cushai comes and declares that the Lord has avenged David of his enemies that day. To which David responds in verse 32. The king said to Cushai, is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, the enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt be as that young man is. Cushai tries to, he was probably coached up by, by Joab pretty well, and he tries to paint Absalom's death in this positive light. He says, may all of, God, of David's enemies be as that man is. Remember, David, this man wanted to kill you. Now he's dead. This is supposed to be a good thing. But David is devastated by this. The scriptures tell us he went into his chamber which was above the gate opening, and he wept for his son, saying in verse 33, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. This transitions us to chapter 19, where we find David still mourning, Joab returns from the battlefield and David is still in this state of great mourning. And we read in verses 2 and 3, the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say how the king was grieved for his son and the people gat them by stealth that day into the city as people ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. So the idea is this, David was up there above the gate and he was wailing and he was mourning and he was weeping for his son. He was distraught and the people coming back from battle. Normally you would expect the winners to come back from battle to great fanfare. Their king honors them. They are, they are regaled with honor. Instead they hear that the king is so upset and it says that they had to come back and literally sneak around as if not just that they lost the battle, but they had to sneak around as if they had fled from the battle, as if they had left early, as if they were men of dishonor. 
they were ashamed. It kind of reminds you of, of perhaps uh, how man, many of the, the young men felt coming back from Vietnam, right? They went over to fight for their country. They come back, and as they're walking through the airport, they're being spit upon and cursed. And they say, what did I do? I just went to fight. They didn't understand. They, they, they weren't into all the geopolitics. They were just there to do what the, their country had asked them to do. That idea where they were shamed, these men came back and David was so mournful over his son that they were literally, they had to come back in shame. And Joab is angry at this. He has had enough. He is frustrated. He enters into the house of the king and in verses 5 through 7 he says this, Joab came into the house of the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life, and the lives of thy sons and thy daughters, and the lives of thy wives, and the lives of thy concubines, and that thou lovest thine enemies, and hatest thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived, and all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. Now therefore arise, go forth, and speak comfortably unto thy servants. For I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night. And that will be worse unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. Joab says, look David, we've got a real problem here. The problem is that you are mourning for your enemy and you have ignored those that have saved your life. You are mourning for the one who was trying to kill you, but you are, but, but the ones who love you and who fought for you feel neglected and feel rejected. So much so that I feel like if Absalom had lived and I and all of your men had died, you'd be happier than you are right now. And David, that's a problem. And he says this, he says, David, if you don't change this, if you don't go down to the gate and you don't thank your people and you don't honor them for their battle and for their victory, you're going to lose them. They're going to revolt against you. And the things that you will experience in the future will be worse than anything you've experienced in the past. The king listens. He gets it. He gets up. He goes to the gate. The people come to the king for his reassurance and for his praise. But all was not happy and content for outside of David's followers, the nation had been thrown into chaos. David had been good to the nation, saving them out of the hand of the Philistines. But then the nation had chosen Absalom over David and they had made a deliberate choice. We want Absalom more than David. They had made that choice. They followed Absalom. They watched David flee the city in shame. Now this Absalom who they had followed, who they said, we choose him, now he's dead. And they're saying, well, shouldn't we ask David back? Shouldn't we call him back? He was good to us. He was a good king. And this isn't just... uh, the broader nation of Israel in scope here. Verse 11, the king sends to Zadok and Abiathar and has them talk to the elders of David's tribe, of Judah, and asks why it is that they were the last to bring the king back. The king says, look, all of the other tribes are talking about bringing me back, but I haven't heard a word out of Judah. Judah is my own flesh and blood. Shouldn't they be wanting me back? And then David asks Zadok and Abiathar to speak directly to Amasa. Amasa, remember, is David's half-nephew. He's the one that was the captain of, of Absalom's host. He was the general of Absalom's armies. And he tells Amasa that he wants Amasa to become the general of his armies, to become the captain of his host in the place of Joab. 
By this point, it seems likely that David had heard that Joab was the one that killed his son and killed him in cold blood. This is not the first time this has happened. So David says, Amasa, I want you to become the captain of my host. Joab had killed too many good men in direct contradiction to David's orders. He was not an obedient general, and now he had killed David's son, and he was ready to have him replaced. According to verse 14, all of these actions brought the hearts of the men of Judah to be even as one heart, the text says, desiring the return of David as their king. So now Judah's on board. Israel's on board. Judah's on board. They're ready to receive David back as their king. So he returns. And the scriptures tell us that the people came to Gilgal to meet him as he came over the Jordan. Uh, If you're familiar, Gilgal was a very important place in Jewish history. It was the place on the other side of the Jordan just after the walls of Jericho fell and the city of Ai was destroyed where the people of Israel re-ratified the covenant. They got re-circumcised and they ratified the covenant with God, with the Lord, that they would serve him. Gilgal means rolling and God said that that was the place where the reproach of Egypt rolled off the back of Israel. So that's the place where they came to receive David back as king. And as they're coming, here comes Shimei. You remember Shimei. He's the guy in chapter 16 who was cursing David and throwing stones at David. And he was, of course, of Saul's lineage, saying that the blood of Saul was on his head, that he was a bloody, wicked man, and that he should leave, and he was cursing him and throwing rocks at him. He's the one that Abishai said, hey, can I lop his head off? Just let me lop his head off. He's cursing the king in Israel. Well, now he comes. And the Scriptures tell us that he comes down with the people of Judah. He's one of the first people there to make a a proactive meeting with David. But this time he comes with a thousand men of his own tribe, of the men of Benjamin. And David's journey across the Jordan is in a ferry. And the text tells us in verse 18 that Shimei fell down before the king. And in verse 19 and 20 he said this, Let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely in the day that my Lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should should take it to his heart. For thy servant doth know that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I am come the first this day of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord the King. Shimei seeks to show the depth of his repentant heart by showing up with the very first men that came to greet David on his return to the west side of Jordan. He asks David not to impute iniquity unto him and to forgive him for the things which he perversely said on the day that, he, that David had fled from Absalom. He acknowledged that he had sinned. He came to David to acknowledge his fault and to seek David's mercy and, and restoration. Then Abishai speaks up, and we can only imagine what he has to say, right? He was the guy in chapter 16 that wanted to lop the guy's head off. Now look at what he says in verse 21. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he hath cursed the Lord's anointed once again, Abishai wants blood. He's still excited about the idea of killing this guy. But David refuses once again, as he says in verse 22, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? You and your brother are both crazy. What in the world are you guys thinking? Like chapter 16, he doesn't just rebuke Abishai. Notice the, the second person plural pronoun. He rebukes both the sons of Zeruiah. Abishai and Joab. He says, you guys are both 
Just such bloody men. You just want to kill people. And this time David calls him, them his adversaries. You are my adversaries. And he asks, should any man be put to death on this day? I'm back as king. I know my authority. Should any man really have to be put to death on this day? Then he turns to Shimei and he says in chapter 19, verse 23, thou shalt not die. And he doesn't just say it. The scriptures tell us that on that day he swear unto him that Shimei would not die for this sin. Next comes Mephibosheth. Remember all of these people that, that came or didn't come on the way out? Now we're coming back in. And here comes Mephibosheth. We checked out the end result of Shimei. Here comes Mephibosheth. Remember that in chapter 16, Mephibosheth did not come to David. He did not come out of the city with him. Instead, remember, his servant, Ziba, came out. And David said, where's Mephibosheth? Why hasn't he come out? And Ziba says, Mephibosheth is giddy with delight. He says that now that the kingdom can be restored to the house of Saul, he didn't want to come out, but I brought provisions. And David, in response, gave Ziba all of Mephibosheth's inheritance, said, you can have it all. You take it. Because obviously Mephibosheth is not on my side. Well, David returns and Mephibosheth comes to meet him. And the scriptures say in verse 24 that he came and he had not dressed his feet. He had not trimmed his beard and he had not washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that he came again in peace. The text tells us that, that Mephibosheth had remained in a state of mourning all the while that David was gone. Signs that Mephibosheth in his heart truly mourned for David and longed for him to be restored. That he was deeply troubled by David's departure. And this would be surprising to David. It would be surprising to us because of what Ziba reported. Ziba said Mephibosheth doesn't care about David. Ziba said that Mephibosheth doesn't even want David back. He's giddy because he thinks he can have the kingdom now, which of course was foolish. So David speaks to Mephibosheth in chapter 19, verse 25, and says, why didn't you come with me into exile? And Mephibosheth answers. He says he tried, but Ziba had deceived him. He told Ziba, go saddle the ass so that I can go unto David, because he's lame in his feet, he cannot do it himself. But Ziba instead went out and he slandered Mephibosheth's intentions, presumably for his own gain, and it worked. So Mephibosheth appeals in verse 28. And he says this, For all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thy own table. What right, therefore, have I yet to cry any more unto the king? He really just appeals to David's mercy. He shows real character here. He, he said this, Look, everything I have, David, was given to me by you. Before you pointed me out and gave me an inheritance and let me sit at the king's table, I had nothing. So if I have nothing again, that's fine. I'm not going to ask you for anything. He says, it's enough for me that you're back. It's enough for me that you are safe. You've been so good to me. I'm content. And the king responds by saying... To Mephibosheth, you and Ziba work this out. You go and you deliver the land. You, you divide the land between the two of you. You decide how much you want. You, he decides how much he wants. You divide the land. You work it out. And we read that in verse 29. Next we come to Barzillai. 
He was the man in chapter 17 who had gone out of his way to host David and to give him rest during his exile. In recognition for his kindness, David asks Barzillai to come with him to Jerusalem. He says, come with me and I will care for you. I will take care of you for the rest of your life. But Barzillai refuses. He says, look, David, king, I'm 80 years old. My mind isn't very sharp. My senses are dull. My hearing isn't very good. He states, I can't enjoy what Jerusalem has to offer. I can't hear the music of your courts. I can't enjoy the sights and the sounds. I'd be more or less just a burden. And so he asks David to simply allow him to go back to his house and to die among his own people and in his own city. But he has a son, and his son's name is Kimham. And he says, would you let my son go with you? And let my son enjoy all of the blessings that Jerusalem would have to offer. And David consents. With the intent of honoring Barzillai, he honors his son. Continuing on, all is still not perfect. We close the chapter, chapter 19, with conflict. David returns. The people of Judah were with him. Half the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are upset because the people of Judah had been the ones to bring David over Jordan and they wanted to do it. He's our king too, they said. We wanted to bring him over Jordan and you didn't wait for us. You brought him over Jordan without us. Judah asked why they're upset over this, that the king was near of kin to them. Israel responds, look, we have ten parts in the king. You have, you don't. It was, we were already dividing between the ten tribes and the two tribes, um, Judah and Benjamin on one side and Israel on the other. And so they said, we have more right to him than you do because we have ten parts in the king and you only have two parts in the king. And these words set up a conflict. A conflict which we find in chapter 20. This is the first time we've seen true tribal conflict in some time. These fierce words stirred up a Benjamite named Sheba. The text calls him a man of Belial. You recall we've spoken of that term Belial several times. It speaks of a worthless man, an empty man, a man with no virtue, a man with no sense. It speaks of a a man uh, who is just a bad person or doesn't regard God's laws. A man of Belial is a selfish and a proud man and a rude man. And this man is a man of Belial. He's willing to threaten, to threaten the peace of Israel for his own frustrations. And Sheba, he blows the trumpet. And he calls for the children of Benjamin to reject the leadership of David. He says, we're done with David. And the tribes of Israel, having been deeply offended by Judah's words in chapter 19, chose to follow him. So Judah says, nope, he's our near of kin. Israel is offended. Sheba says, I'm done with this. We have no part in David. Israel says, yeah, I like this idea. No part in David. So now we again have this split. Judah on one side, and this time actually 11 tribes on the other. And they follow Sheba. David, on the other hand, he returns to Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is he takes those 10 concubines. Remember those 10 concubines that Absalom had defiled because he had left them to keep the house. And uh, because they have been defiled, they are now, they have to live in widowhood for the rest of their lives. And so they live apart from the king. They, they can have no intimacy, no physical intimacy. They live in widowhood until their death. Uh, it's not a negligent existence. David took care of them well, but it was a shamed existence. Like David's own daughter, Tamar, who had been raped by Amnon before Amnon had been killed by Absalom. 
and then would live in mourning in the house of Absalom for the rest of her days, so too these ten concubines would live in shame. Now having set his house in order, David goes to stop this rebellion, the rebellion of Sheba. And he calls for his military to be gathered in verse 4. But he doesn't call Joab to do it like normal. Instead, as we've read, he calls Amasa. Amasa is his new captain of the host. So he calls Amasa to compile the army. Now, this is Joab's official demotion here. Amasa's promotion to captain over the hosts. He tells Amasa, in three days I need you to assemble the army and to be ready to fight. So Amasa does this. He assembles the men of Judah. David then tells Abishai, Joab's brother, that he is going to pursue after Sheba and not allow him to get into any fenced city. Don't allow him to go into a fenced city where he can hole up, where he can fortify himself, catch him before he can get there. So they all begin preparing for their duties. And while this is all taking place, Joab goes to meet up with Amasa. Verse 8 says that as Joab approached Amasa, his sword fell out of his belt and fell to the ground. Joab did this on purpose. He's walking up to Amasa and, oops, my sword fell. That gives me a reason to have my sword in my hand now rather than in its sheath. So he, he now has his sword in his hand, seemingly innocently because his sword had fallen on the ground. And he then greets Amasa, asking if all is well with him. And he grabs his beard, the text says, with his right hand. That would be to come up and kiss him, as was the custom of the day. And as he did so, he thrust his sword into Amasa's abdomen. Just once. And the scriptures tell us Amasa died. Joab then turns to the men who had been commanded to follow Amasa and says, if you are for David and you are for Joab, then you will follow me. Basically, Joab reasserts his command over David's armies here. All the while, Joab is making an appeal. He he is calling the people to follow him. Amasa is lying there dead in the road. This troubles the people. They struggle with this. So Joab says, okay, fine. And he drags Amasa's body and he throws it into the woods into the field, excuse me. He covers it with a cloth and then he says, okay, now we pursue after Sheba. Once again, we see the problem with this man, Joab. This is the third man that David has loved and trusted that Joab has deceitfully, dishonorably murdered. Two in just the study tonight. We now read of the conclusion. Joab and Abishai pursue Sheba into a city called Abel, They were not able to stop him from getting into a city. The name Abel Beth Meaka means the meadow of the house of Meaka. It was a city in the north of Israel. Shiva took, uh, he holed up there. He took, took refuge there. So Joab and the army, they begin to siege the city. They intend to tear down the very walls of the city to destroy this man. But verse 16 tells us, that a wise woman comes out of the city and she asks to meet with Joab. She mentions that Abel was once a very great city in Israel, renowned for its wise men and for its wisdom, that literally people would come from all around Israel to hear the wisdom of the men of that city. And she asks him why they're trying to destroy a city which has an inheritance in Israel, a part of of Israel's founding, seeing that they are a peaceful people and they want no trouble. 
Joab replies that he has no desire to destroy the city, but only to capture this man, Sheba, living within the walls. He tells the woman, here's the deal. You deliver him up, and our mission will be accomplished and we'll leave the city alone. If not, they're going to tear down the walls. Having heard Joab's conditions, she says, I will return to the city, and his head will be thrown over the wall. So she returns to the city. She calls the people together. She tells them the situation. They cut off Sheba's head. They throw it over the wall. And Joab is content. And he departs. The conflict is over. And the chapter ends by reasserting David's position of leadership over the kingdom. Joab is still the captain of David's host. Benaiah is still the leader of the Carathites and the Pelethites. We talked about them before. A man named Adoram is the tax collector. Would have been something that only happened later in David's reign, not early. The tax collection. Jehoshaphat was recorder. Shiva was the scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. Eris was the chief ruler. Three chapters of scripture. Many lessons to learn. I'm going to give you six applications this evening. They'll be brief. One right after the other. It's kind of an amazing thing when I get through all the scripture. Sometimes it actually goes a bit faster. Uh, Because I'm not getting as detailed. Well, I'd like us to consider six, six applications this evening. The first, love like David. Love like David. You know, tonight was a character study, wasn't it? A study of people, of their character, of their reactions. We're going to learn about many different people. And you know, we need to love like David. David's love for Absalom was overwhelming, was it not? In these pages of Scripture. Like Eli in 1 Samuel, who... After Israel's flight with the Philistines, he doesn't even care for the outcome. He doesn't even care for the lives of his sons. He only cares about whether or not the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was safe. David's single focus in this battle is the love that he has for his son, who has gone so far out of his way to destroy him. By this point, I'm not attempting to justify David's poor appreciation for his soldiers, which he shows as he mourns for Absalom. But what I urge you to consider today is the heart of a man who would be willing to place himself at a disadvantage for the love of another. This is what it means to love. David says, don't hurt Absalom in the battle. That's not how you win a battle, right? You don't win a battle by showing your enemy mercy. But David says, show mercy because I love him. We ought to love in this way. Be willing even to be placed at a disadvantage that we might love. Husbands ought to love their wives this way. Her needs over yours. Wives ought to love their husbands this way. His needs over yours. This is how we ought to love one another in the church. This is the kind of attitude we ought to show one to another. Paul teaches us in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 as he urges God's people to have the mind of Christ Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Particularly as we think of personal interaction and fighting, doesn't it often come down to either strife or pride? Come down to either the desire to fight or the desire to be right? Don't do anything in that attitude. Much rather, look on the things of others. Esteem others better than yourself. Care more about others 
than about things. Care more about others than about your happiness. Care more about others than about your convenience. This is the mark of the mind of Christ. David had this. And we ought to as well. So love like David. Secondly, repent like Shimei. Repent like Shimei. Shimei had done a horrible thing. Threw stones at David. Cursed him. Wrongfully charged him with the blood of Saul. David had done everything to spare Saul. And everything to spare Ishbosheth. David was not at fault. Their blood was not on David's hands. But Shimei really repents here, doesn't he? He's the first to greet David on the other side of Jordan. He knew he was wrong, and so he was the first one there. He proactively comes to David. He falls down at his feet. He openly admits his sin. He declares his error. He places himself at David's mercy. That's what it means to repent. You and I are sinful people. We have sinned and we will sin. We do selfish things. We will do things in pride. We shouldn't. We don't have to, but we will because we're sinners. But the difference between the man of righteousness walking in fellowship with the Lord and a man walking out of fellowship in, and persisting in his sinfulness, the difference between these two men is repentance. When you sin, you recognize your sin you humble yourself before God. You acknowledge your sin. You don't make excuses for your sin. You repudiate your sin. You state that your sin is wrong. You validate God's righteousness and you place yourself on the side of His righteousness. That is repentance. Shimei caught that. He said, David's right, I'm wrong. David is vindicated, I am not. And he humbled himself in the sight of all of the people before David. He understood repentance. He did a horrible thing, but he repented. And you know what? He found mercy. And so too do we. I mentioned it already. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is it. Acknowledge your sin. Repent of your sin. Humble yourself before God and we are forgiven and restored. We repent to God, but we ought to repent to those that we wronged as well. When we, when we wrong others, we ought to be ready and willing to humble ourselves before them. Humble ourselves before them and make it right. As a testimony before the Lord and as a testimony to them. We could park, we continue, however, this evening. Love like David. Repent like Shimei. Forgive like David. In response to Shimei, you notice that David doesn't just have mercy. David tells Abishai, no, this is a day of joy. Don't kill him today. No one's going to die today. But David goes farther than that, doesn't he? I believe he goes farther here than he has to. He not only pardons Shimei in that day, but he swears that Shimei would not be killed by David for this. I will not kill you. I will not take vengeance upon you, Shimei, for this. Now, if you go on to read in 1 Kings, you'll find there will be consequences for Shimei's wrong. He comes up again. We'll see him again. We won't because we're not going to continue in 1 Kings. But if you read into 1 Kings, you'll see him again. One day we'll get there. But David is so merciful here beyond just that day to, to his very death. 
He's merciful to Shimei. And this is how we need to forgive. Why? Because David did? No. But because Jesus did. And he's our example. And be ye kind, Ephesians 4.32 says, one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Jesus forgave you all. If we could put ourselves into the mind of Christ truly, if we can, if God would so bless you to give you just a brief glimmer, even just a few moments of understanding how vile our sin is to Him, then we might just be able to understand exactly how much Christ has forgiven us. So how should we forgive? Mercy is our charge. Forgiveness is our privilege. Not because others deserve it. That's not why we forgive. Not because they've asked for it. Not because they've earned it. Sure glad I didn't have to earn Christ's forgiveness. Sure glad I didn't have to deserve Christ's forgiveness. I'm sure glad I didn't have to even wait, that Christ didn't even wait for me to ask before he secured it on my behalf. He proactively stepped into this world with the mind of forgiveness. So too ought we. That's how Jesus forgave us. That's how we ought to forgive others. Love like David. Repent like Shimei. Forgive like David. Be yielded like Mephibosheth. Be yielded like Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth had been wronged by Ziba, hadn't he? I mean, as far as we can tell from the text, as he comes with his feet unshod, not having shaved, not having washed, he's a man that was in mourning. He was a man that was legitimately mourning here. If he had truly just delighted in Absalom taking over, or if he had thought that he had any chance to be king, he would not have done that. He would not have stayed unwashing, unshaven, with his feet uncovered. He would not have done that. This man was in mourning. He comes to David, and he had been falsely accused, and for that false accusation, he had lost his land, he had lost his house, he lost his inheritance. He lost everything when Ziba falsely accused him. But you know what? It didn't matter to him. And the reason why, he tells David, before, remember, I mentioned this already, but let me mention it again. He tells David, before your mercy, I was but a dead man. I had nothing. Before David's mercy upon him for Jonathan's sake, he was a crippled man who had nothing. His father and his grandfather had been killed in a battle. He was supposed to be in the lineage to king, but now he couldn't be because he was lame and they would never accept a lame man as king. But he is still in the lineage of Saul, which means every day he was fearful for his life because what do you do when you're a new king? You kill all of the competition. You kill the family of the man who was trying to kill you. Mephibosheth lived in fear. He saw himself as a dead man. And David approaches him. And the first thing that Mephibosheth does when David calls for him much earlier in, in 2 Samuel is he falls on his feet and he humbles himself before David just hoping that David won't lop off his head. And instead, what does David do? David gives him a chariot at his table makes him as part of the family, gives him an inheritance, gives him his father's and his grandfather's land back. 
And Mephibosheth understands something. He's yielded here. He recognizes this. He says, look, David, you gave me everything I had. And I lost it. But who am I to complain? Before I knew you, I had nothing. Now I have nothing again. You had every right to take it away because you gave it. If you gave it to me, David, you had every right to take it away. What a perspective. What a perspective. He doesn't get offended. Yeah, but he lied. He lied, king. He lied, David. I tried. Don't hold that against me. He doesn't say that. He says, look, before you I had nothing. You gave it all to me. You took it all away. I'm still alive. You are alive. Praise the Lord. This is what Job said too, right? Job was a, one of the greatest men of the East, man of wealth, righteousness. He loses everything and he says this. This is the same attitude. Joab arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. He didn't charge God. God, how dare you take away these things? He says, look God, everything I have is a blessing from you. You gave it to me and you have every right to take it away. That's the same attitude that Mephibosheth says here with David. Can we be yielded like that? Do you realize that everything you have is not yours? That your life, your children, your home, your job, your family, your church, the clothes on your back, the possessions you have, they're gifts from God. They've been given to you by God. He gave it. And it is His. And as He gave it to you, you are entitled to nothing. You deserve nothing. God owes you nothing. And as He gave it to you, He has every right to take it away. And if He does, we really have no right to complain. We should be yielded, like Mephibosheth. Say, Lord, without you I am a dead man. So I'm already ahead. I'm still breathing. So it's been a good day. Thank you, God. And may you be praised. So love like David. Repent like Shimei. Forgive like David. Be yielded like Mephibosheth. Fifth, be content like Barzillai. Barzillai blessed David. He fed and gave David rest in a time of great need. He didn't do it for reward, but David offered him reward. He didn't ask for it, and you know, he didn't even receive it. He did what he did, not because he expected anything in return. He did what he did to serve the Lord. And he was happy simply to go back and to finish his life in peace. May we serve the Lord with such contentment. May we serve the Lord not for what he can give us, but because he's worthy. May we serve others not because we expect reward, but because the Lord will be pleased. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the scriptures tell us, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. 
for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Isn't that a blessing? Can't that be enough? I mean, if, if, if we really had nothing else other than this promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, could that be enough for you? Could it be enough for you if you stepped away from the rat race, right? We've got Black Friday coming up. Who knows? Maybe people are going to die again this year. Is it enough for us that we can just have this promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? Is it enough for us when we serve others not to get that reward, not to get that thank you? Is it enough that you can serve the church for years without anyone coming up, shaking your hand and saying, hey, you did a good job because you know before the Lord that you did do a good job and the Lord is pleased? Is it enough for you when you've served your spouse and they don't even notice it or they don't even care and they've never even given you a thank you? Is it enough for you that you know that you did it with all your heart as unto the Lord and the Lord is pleased? Because he has promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. Sixth point. Love like David. Repent like Shimei. Forgive like David. Be yielded like Mephibosheth. Be content like Barzillai. Finally, don't be anything like Joab. Don't be anything like Joab. Now we can pinpoint little good things here and there. His rebuke of David for his mourning, there's probably some wisdom in that. We'll see at the very last chapter of uh, 2 Samuel, Joab is going to strongly discourage David from numbering the people. David will ignore that, number the people, and be judged by God for it. Joab has some faith. He has some faith. But look, there's no, if, you want to go, if you want to find some faith, go emulate Jonathan. Don't, 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 don't worry about Joab. Joab is not a good example. He has vilely betrayed and murdered Saul's captain, Abner, David's son, Absalom, his own cousin, Amasa, in explicit defiance to the will of the anointed king of Israel for his own selfish reasons. Sure, he's effective. He gets the job done, but he's an ends justifies the means sort of a guy. He's a my way or the highway sort of a guy. It matters how we do things, Christians. God's will done in opposition to God's way does not make God happy. Joab will, in 1 Kings, receive the consequences of his wickedness. And we need not be anything like Joab. Let's choose to serve the Lord in honesty and integrity. Not to stab people in the back because it suits our purposes. Or because we want petty revenge for wrongs that we perceive they've done against us. That was Joab. Joab was a dishonorable man. Don't be anything like him. Six lessons from three chapters of Scripture. Six character studies, if we will. All of this evil, the result of God's judgment upon David for his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite. All of this, not just these three chapters, but the last couple as well. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. All of that would have been avoided had David only not lusted after Bathsheba and taken it to extreme ends. Yet several important lessons for us to learn today. Love like David. Repent like Shimei. Forgive like David. Be yielded like Mephibosheth. 
Be content like Barzillai. And don't be anything like Joab. Let's close in prayer.